0: I'm Steve Vibronics, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 19. Welcome to the 19th Life in Dub podcast. I hope you're all okay out there. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. All the previous episodes are free online for you all to enjoy, because Life in Dub is all about sharing these amazing life stories. All the info you need is at lifeindub.com. If you want to get in touch just email me vibronix at gmail.com or through the usual social media channels, i do my best to get back to everyone who gets in touch, it's always interesting hearing your comments and suggestions so just drop us a line. This week I want to talk a bit about King Tubby's, you see, I recently finished the biography published by the Natty Dread magazine team over there in France. I do think it's a good book, it's an interesting read and deals well with the difficulties of getting real information about a man long since passed away who's always been shrouded in mystery anyway. But to read about him again, not that we need reminding of what an impact he's had on all of us reggae and dub fans, it just made me think what an influence he's had on my life and what an amazing story it is that he and a handful of other key people changed the musical world forever. Even today in the studio, every day, I'm using the classic high-pass filter, spring reverb and delay combination that he cooked up back in Jamaica so many years ago. It's a tragedy his life ended so soon And after reading the book, I can't help wondering what he'd make of the sheer number of studio engineers like me that still worship at his temple and keep his techniques alive well into the 21st century. It's a legacy like no other, so respect to Osborne Ruddock, the true king. This week, my guest is Paul from Nucleus Roots in Manchester. Nucleus are one of the great collectives and production houses that started out in the 1990s. Paul talks about his love of live music and how punk has been a big influence on him, as well as the whole story of my personal favourite Nucleus Roots release, the infamous Brown album, that's packed full of so many great tunes. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Paul,
1: Nucleus Roots, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure. And thanks for inviting me on the show. All the way up there in Manchester? Yeah, all the way up in, well, over the side to you, really, isn't it? Yeah, up in Manchester. All the good stuff happens north of London.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but listen, what I'm doing with the podcast is the first thing I'm doing with all the guests is asking them all the same question, which is a sort of just about a special track, something that really influenced you or changed things for you, or an example of kind of something that really kind of switched things up for you. So I was wondering if you kind of want to talk
1: about yeah. a track like that. Well, I mean, for me, the first... You know, music I listened to, the first thing that turned me on to music that I really liked was uh, Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols, unfortunately. Nice. You know, it was brilliant. When I heard that one as a kid, it was like, was it. I was awake. It's takes so it takes something, I've like discussed with you before, you know, it's a. Uh, music is just in the background and life is full of music, but then a, a particular sort of music comes along that just wakes you up, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know, you're into music, you know what I mean? It's like. For me, it was never mind the bollocks. I heard it, you know, when I was, when I was a, well. I was about eight or nine years old, actually. So it goes back a long way into the seventies and that. I think my dad got. Well, that was, it,
0: it was all happening then as well, wasn't it? It was a proper revolution then. It was like it really
1: kicked things up and changed things. Yeah, the
0: whole punk movement.
1: Yeah, well, for, for me, it was like I say, it was an awakening. wow, this is music, you know. Wow, this is brilliant, you know. This is like for me, it was just wow. It was, it was amazing, amazing sounding. It still is an amazing sounding album now, and I still put it on now, for need, you know, kickstart me day. Never mind the yeah, punk. No, so. I'm, uh, really I'm
0: a punk. Punk was a big influence on me as well, for sure. So you you were brought up in Manchester, then?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I was brought up all over manchester really. i grew up in childcare, so well, that must have been quite a ride then yeah i mean you know it, it wasn't brilliant at first but then i landed into a children's home in withington which is a, a little village in uh, manchester like people may know it and it's a, it was a place called lockout house stayed there for about five five years and i uh, say <laughs> they got released but you know i uh, went back to my parents and that so yeah i've just you know um been then I moved over to Fallowfield, which is another part of uh, Manchester, and and that's where the journey started. Got myself a guitar eventually. Obviously, people know you as like a musician primarily. So,
0: so was the guitar like the first thing for you then?
1: Yeah, I mean, no, actually, I mean, I played drums at first. I used to have a drum kit, but it's just a bit unsociable when you're living on a council estate, and the, the neighbours like, what the? I remember my dad coming in, like, you know, what the you know, fucking hell's going on here, I can hear you down bloody, down down Lloyd Street, which is a big street, you know, I can hear you down the shops, you know what I mean, so I had to have a change of plan there, so I thought, oh, take up the guitar, it took a while to get one, because, you know, we're a poor family, you know what I mean, struggling and that, and this is like, we're talking like 1982 here, so there wasn't a lot of money around, so it was like, it took a while for me to actually acquire a guitar for myself to get learning, you know, so, yeah, just, you know, guitar was a bit bit more of a, are, um a sociable instrument you could turn up and turn down. <laughs> but it was like mainly punk bands that we were, we were getting into, you know, obviously because of the punk influ- influence, you know. Because
0: so. obviously Manchester's like one of those big music cities, and I had this discussion with Strider talking about Bristol, because where I come from, this tiny town where nothing ever happened, and I'd look to places like Bristol and Manchester and be like, wow... It's going on there so what, what what was going on in Manchester when you were young I mean in the early 80s because there was a vibrant music scene I guess well
1: I mean when I was I mean I was still at school I was, used to go to places like the Ritz because I used to have like Monday night punk night and stuff you know alternative nights so we used to go down there on a Monday and it was like 50p in 50p for a beer so that was that was you know all day long for that you know so then it was like Rockwell Well, there's loads of clubs in Manchester in the day actually I and mean, it's a shame now because it's a little bit of a homogenised scene you know it's more not to do with the punters so much now, you know, and all the clubs have gone anyway, you know, unfortunately, and you know, unfortunately because of what's been going on lately, more clubs are going, so you know. Yeah, for real.
0: And what was it? Was there a sense of it being like a music place, though? Because you know, it's got such a history of
1: music. Well, I guess, I guess it has. I mean, me for young, I wouldn't. When I was, you know, obviously a teenager, I probably wouldn't have been aware. But it was like, you know. I was, I was hanging around with a lot of older people. Obviously, my brother's a little bit older than me, so they used to go to places like, you know, um was the place called, The Electric circus some places like that where all these bands used to play, like a lot of the punk bands used to come down, like Discharge or GBH or, you know, Crass or, you know. Um, so there was, was a vibrant punk scene then, but obviously, I mean, I was a bit young then, so it was, by the time I came of age, it was like starting to late 80s, you know, Mid to late eighties, I suppose a rave scene was coming in, and that's when we got. I met up with Jono, and we got Community Charge together. So we were kind of a. <clears throat> we weren't part of that hacienda scene, you know that rave scene so much we were doing like punky reggae music and touring around Germany you know and what about reggae when did like reggae music kind of enter your life how, how did that well, happen well I mean I've got, to, I've got to thank my dad for that really because I mean my dad had a really massive record collection and it was just you know i give thanks to him for like getting me into audio really and having uh, you know uh, the importance of having a good hi-fi to listen to your music on you know because you know even in them days he'd have like you know Marantz or whatever you know like proper nice systems you know but yeah, I don't know, mate. All separate, yeah, all separate, Steve. Yeah, and a little gold, got gold style that my aunts used to be in. It was like a bright brush metal. It actually looked gorgeous, you know. And thinks I've still got one now, actually. Not my aunt's, but a, it's a silver, <laughs> silver brushed separate. Nice. Yeah, well, you got to have a quality if you're playing music, you know what I mean. But as for that, yeah, I mean, reggae music. It was my daddy, because he knew, you know, I, I like music and everything. And I mean, everybody did. Bob Marley by that, you know. Everybody gets turned on to bob marley you know who, who doesn't but he's seen it he was like kind of into that music you know a bit of reggae music and he he turned me on to the uh, frontline albums as it were you know by virgin had brought them out and i think it was john Lydon, i think he'd been um who, who'd acquired you know gone over to jamaica and acquired the bands Cause i think um you, you know virgin were looking at this emerging reggae market and he was saying like you know well i'll go and get the bands. so like you know. Me, my dad had these albums, I don't even really remember them, the Frontline albums.
0: Yeah, I do, I mean a few people have mentioned them because they, they definitely broke down the door of like rock and punk and kind of like listeners and kind of presented reggae music to those people and, cause, and also they were, they were good priced and they were compilations exactly, in those
1: days. Exactly. A cheap
0: compilation was a great kind of way into music. I, I used to buy them when I was a kid.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're great albums. I mean, so you got everything on it. You know, you, Glenn Washington, Gladiators, who's my favourite band. You know, the Toots I mean, uh, you know, Mighty Diamonds would be on there. Twinkle Brothers. So if you wanted to, you know, hear what was going on in Jamaica uh, as opposed to like, you know, the, you know, Bob Marley, because Bob Marley was quite commercial by them times. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You, so you're getting a real essence of uh, what you know Jamaican music was about. And I, you know, for me, it was hearing and I thought, wow, you know, this is amazing. You know, I'm playing, like, playing guitar and I'm, like, aspiring to blues and been listening to Jimi Hendrix and all the, the blues artists and stuff like that. I thought, right, well, reggae music is pretty similar, isn't it? You know, I mean, I can play yeah, I can the play all. guitar style isn't a million miles away
0: from that. It's all coming from the same kind of source, really.
1: Well, it's, yeah, and it's it's roots music. I mean, blues was is roots music. It's suffering sufferers music, you know what I mean? It's something you can, you know you know immerse yourself in and that and it's like you know and i started hearing a lot of the guitar solos. i thought wow i can transfer this over to this this medium and it's like you know wow you know it's, you know it works exactly the same all the all the chords i mean i mean reggae music is like you know in simple swarm form could have just have two chords you know it's like mm-hmm. blues music you know like 12 bar blues I and mean, they call it a one a one five progression or you can have a one four five progression or whatever you know so It worked out for me. So that's when I started, like, you know, jamming along with reggae music and using the same style of uh, guitar playing, the riffs, and it kind of worked out. So,
0: and were you aware of any, like, reggae music going on in Manchester at the time?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, like, you know, reggae music and and Moss Side, because we grew up in, you know, eventually, you know, Fallerfield was next door to Moss Side. So, you know, reggae music was kind of the soundtrack of our lives, really. You know, it was always there in the background. Mm. Because you know, we live in a big Jamaican community. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, grateful for actually. Because you know, it's all there. You know, I mean, we used to go to the blueses as well after after the clubs and that. So you know, there's a few. I mean, now it's like you don't really see hear of blueses anymore and Shabines and that. You know, so we used to go to the. Uh, you know, like when Hume was open, he used to be on Metlock Court, you know, you just knock on, rap on the door and that. And... So what, what were they like for people who may be
0: listening who don't, you know, people who remember them, but also people who've never had a chance to go to one? I mean, what, what
1: was a Moss Side blues dance like? <laughs> Very dark, you know. It's just like, there'd be no light in there. There'd just be a room, you could have a bar. And they'd be playing you know crucial sounds but I mean you know the, the West Indian community really got on with the like the punks and that so they used to let us in and say oh yeah these are guys are alright and we'll come and have a listen smoke a drawer and that and listen to some tunes and that and whether whether I knew what I was listening to was another story but it was just like you know that for us you know was uh, like a sound system I suppose in a way but we were like you know blues parties really you know so I'm sure a lot of a lot of the older generation wouldn't will, will know them you know but you obviously know, it's kind of it's hear about them anymore, so house parties and stuff like that. I mean, you probably still have them, but you know, they, we used to know where to go after clubs and all that, you know, for after hours and that. Let's go and get a weed. Let's go down to Irene's or whatever. It was one called Irene's, actually, and it's the Robin Hood pub on Lloyd Street, if I remember correctly. And, you know, And then you roll out in the daylight and then. Go home.
0: I mean, it's a it's a great great way to like tune into reggae to, to hear it at a source like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I probably didn't know what I was listening to. You know what I mean? It was a, you know, I suppose a dark start of dancehall as well in the eighties and that. So it was just the Jamaican vibe. You know, it's really really nice. So you got to meet a lot of people as well. And then you know, people are still know now. You know, a lot of the older generation Jamaican community that's still you know. See me today, so how are you doing, Lush? And all that, you
0: know. And in terms of your own sort of musical progress, you said you, you met Jono, the legendary Dub adder, and then you formed you formed this band, you formed Community Charge. So, what was what, that band? What was going on with that? Because they, they did quite well, didn't, didn't you? Yeah, we while. did,
1: we did all right. There's still a lot of people inquiring about them today for some strange reason. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I met Jono, the legendary Jono. <laughs> <laughs> it's good the way you said it. The, the one and only, the one and only Dub Dada. Yeah, yeah. We, we. I mean, we had a band. I was I had a bass bass player. I was jamming with called Sloan. He was a Scottish fella, pretty tasty bass player. But you know, he um, he liked his bit of reggae. But he was like into the, you know, Rage Against the Machine kind of style as well. Like you know, so his, you know, and I was chopping away. I had me mate Tommy Turney on guitar, and we met Quasi. It's actually it was a rehearsal night. and he came down with a, a guy called Quasi. Quasi Ashanti, it was a drummer who brought them down. Actually, you got to check these two, two singers out, and they worked together really well. And then you know, and then we started writing songs, and it was like, wow, well, yeah, you know, we've got a band in, and we became very popular in Manchester. I think it was because it was a community charge thing that happened, and. You know, we kind of, and there's a
0: lot of melting pot kind of music at that time because you've got you know post punk, you've got rave and reggae meeting together, mm. and you've kind of got people living side by side, and you've got a kind of you know hip hop meeting punk, meeting reggae, meeting kind of dance music. There seemed to be a lot of let's say like melting pot music at the time,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a it. it was quite an eclectic band, so there was like a lot of quite influences, but so when you did, which makes it interesting, really, you know, it's like we weren't straight reggae guys but Jono was i mean he knew all this stuff Jono you know it's like to, to, to be fair you know he, he was teaching us about oh, let's do it this way you know these are the styles and he plays some records or something or play some tunes you know let's try and sort of like not so much copy it but you know he gives some you know directions in like you know because he did he did he, he to be fair he, he had a good um, little record collection there which i didn't have and that so you know he was, he was turning me on to this, some some great tunes and that to, for me to study and sort of like, you know, study how the guitars were done and, you know, learning your plucks and your chops and stuff like that, you know. And you
0: say it's popular. I mean, how, how what, what kind of stuff were you doing? You are doing a lot of live shows and...
1: Oh, we were, I mean, I was looking, I dug out some stuff the other day, Steve. I mean, talking about gigging, whether we were getting paid or not was another story, but we were doing a lot of work. I mean, at the time we were gigging with people like, you know, um, uh, Back to the Planets and stuff like that, you know, um... So you know we're doing some quite heavy, heavy touring and stuff, you know. But uh, yeah, we were very popular. Like so, you know, we kind of hit hit the scene at the right time for them people that weren't really doing rave because we weren't doing rave. We were we were smokers, you know what I mean? Really, <laughs> if I can yeah, say it was that. Yeah, it's kind yourself. of like extension of like sort of classic British festival music, you
0: know, like Hawkwind and stuff like that. Kind of kind of moved on and you know mixed with punk and whatever. And what what was it like touring in those days? Because you know when you're young and kind of (laughs) young and reckless. I don't know. It's it's
1: better than it touring now. When I look back, I mean, I wouldn't do it now because we were kids, weren't we? So it was like jumping the van. I mean, remember we? I remember one night we just fell out the Eagle Pub in Hume, and uh, the drummer took the stool he was sat on. We were drinking on. You know what I mean? We got in the van and we buggered off to uh, off to um, to Germany. That was it. Got on the ferry, uh, hid our stash. Because we always used to do a little time capsule, so when we got back, we could uh, pick it up on the way home. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah but, we, you know, we, we were, yeah, but we, you know... we lifesaver. Yeah, but go to London. We were in London every weekend. That was yeah. a journey now. It was a bit different then, because you can't... I wouldn't do that journey now. You know, I'd have to go on train. And also, of vans in those days. A lot and, of van yeah. journeys, you probably probably know yourself, man. You know, in the early... Get in the van. I mean, it was no seats neither. It was just get in the van with the gear. Get yourself a cushion get yourself a packed lunch, and we're off. But, you know, when we got to London, we smashed it. We were only band working, I think at the time, really, working in London prolifically. I mean, we were at the George Roby every... We were there, like, kind of, I don't know, like, in-house band every month, because we'd be playing with the Nutty Boys one one weekend, Then we'd go down and we'd play with their Bad Manners, and then we'd do the stint with De- Desmond Deck, and then it'd go around again, and we were doing them supports all the time. You know, we used to play the Rocket a lot, and... You know, uh, garage, and that. I mean, we just—I mean, I mean—played some mad places as well. You know, skinhead clubs and stuff like that, where we have to lock the lock the doors, and we're like, oh shit, you know what I mean? We're in the wrong area. But you, 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 <laughs>
0: you learn a lot from like just from just doing lots of gigs. There's a lot. There's a lot to be learned from just doing show after show, mm. and just kind of understanding what it's like to perform
1: music and put on a good show for people. Yeah. And, uh, Kind of. you learn your craft don't you Steve you know what I mean you yeah, you sure. start to understand your craft a lot more and the industry as well you know it's like you know and then well, that's the other thing as well it's just like especially when you're young
0: and all you've got is enthusiasm is learning the ropes of like how to promote yourself and organise a tour and do a record it's like a you know nowadays you can go to uni and learn that but in those days it was like you just had to make it up as you went along well this was
1: it I mean I was talking with a uh, brother culture the day he sent me a um, he sent me a photo of a letter we sent him from our management about because uh, Quasi couldn't do a couple of shows I think he'd gone to Ghana or something like that so he wasn't available we wanted to keep the format together and then we'd met I can't remember exactly where you'd have to ask, uh, BC about that, but I can't remember how we met. But I think we phoned him up and said, Oh, you're available for some shows and stuff. And 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 I think my my, age, my, my manager had sent him a letter because he'd sent me this photograph showing me, like, oh, d- dear brother culture, you know, one of them sort of things. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was then. It, it was, was like, like, you like had yeah, to write a letter, exactly. You know, so it was like, you know. I you know it's 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 a, it's a mad one aren't you? I mean now you know when we did Glastonbury for instance, with nucleus roots we um I mean we sent a CD to Chris Tofu you know and he says yeah we'll have a bit of that you know So so just going
0: back to the sort of story and stuff obviously like you know you you're doing well with community charge and stuff I mean how did community charge kind of become nucleus roots because that's sort of the thing that most people will, who are listening will know you for, and that's, you know, how we met and
1: whatever. So how, how did that transition kind of happen? Um, I mean, how it started, it's just, it's just, I don't know, Steve was just one of them. He just went from one into another, you know. I was still into doing some music. Got to get a band together, you know. it was one of them. I was still young, you know. Got to get a band
0: together, so. But obviously, you've moved from doing kind of like sort of punky reggae kind of like festival thing into something that was a, you know, a fully blown like you know, roots reggae outfit.
1: Yeah, more it was. A, it became a bit more roots. I think it was just like homing in the skills a bit more and getting it sound a little bit more more authentic, if if not UK roots style. You know what I mean? But um, I moved on to the bass at the time, and we got the studio. I got the studio together as well with a with a, a, a gentleman called Charlie Poulet, and he got me into doing. You know, he was the keyboard player, was he? No, Charlie was. He was a French lad that I knew. Uh, it was a sound engineer, and we were just. He was living downstairs from me. I got in a flat in, a, in the in the place where I was living. We thought, let's buy a, let's build a studio. I thought, oh great, you know, right. So we, we got a loan, and I think we loan we lent about thousand pounds off somebody, and we just started buying. It. We bought some gear. We bought the first desk was our Sec M K two. I think it was about three hundred quid. have got the, a delay. The legendary set. That's the legend. I have still got it. Steve did the first nice. album on it. You know, it's it's a cracking desk. Great for dub. So all them people out there see it. And if you ever see a set, get one. You know what I mean? Because they're great for dub. So obviously, at some point, you started to develop a
0: bit of a taste for studio and sound and like production and stuff. Because not everyone's interested in that kind of stuff.
1: I, I I mean I was I was a budding sound engineer at the time, so I was I would. Um, I was working at the band on the wall, and I, I was, you know, engineering bands like um, Misty and Roots and stuff at the band on the wall. You know, so it was a kind of a natural progression, really, to put a studio together, be basic. You know, what I mean, we bought a three eight eight machine, which was a the flatbed quarter inch, which I've still got. i looking at the tapes now that we did all the albums on.
0: Completely different process to the kind of stuff people are used to now.
1: But it was a nice process. You got you got into it. It was like you know, it was you know, now you just you know. Put up a screen, will it be able to know these other things? I've just got into because I spoke to you the other day when I phoned you up about going. What's going on here with all this stuff? You know, what I mean? <laughs> so I'm still learning now. Obviously, Steve, you know what I mean? Because I'll be giving you a call, and I gave um, uh, uh, um, Ben Alpha a message the other day about you know showing me age a bit. How's this bloody work? You know what I mean? What is this? <laughs> you know, sort of thing. A, a
0: previous guest on the podcast. Well, hello, Ben. So you started to build this studio up, and kind of like, and and you switched into Nucleus Roots, and then, I guess, started to produce all that music that we know of as Nucleus Roots.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I, I, I bumped into Jono again, like you do, and then, uh, and then um, he, he, we got back working together again, but we kind of. I was running it as a live band for, for for a while, but you know, then it was you know with like a live drummer. Yeah, it was a Richie Sleeve. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, so God bless him. You know what I mean? He, he was the the drummer from Community Charge, and he was a, he was an amazing drummer, even though he didn't think he was a drummer, but because he was, because he was actually a percussion player, amazing Latin percussion player, you know. But he was he was great on the drums as well. So you know, having all that. But after a while, it's like getting gigs with a big ten piece band is like you know. And we'd like, you know, we'd seen Iration Steppers at the time, you know, when he was with Rutical and that doing the live stuff with the, the live digital stuff that Mark used to do, kind of got that idea. He thought, we will do this, won't we? You know, I'll go on bass, Jono on the mix, um, Peter on keyboards. You know, and we started just writing writing songs, and we we got involved as well with the uh, Twelve Tries of Israel. Jono was, I, I think, a member at the time. Um,
0: yeah, because they got a place in Manchester, yeah, isn't that
1: yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on Clone. So most of the artists kind of came out of there really and they were just using you know um we, we offered the nucleus roots wasn't uh, a production at the time we were just kind of a, a studio available and we were doing cheap rates and a lot of the jamaican artists and the 12 tribes artists and that really and really liked the sound we were doing we kind of you know they're oh, you're the only guys that do it you make it sound like jamaican music you know what i mean you really honed it down you know sort of thing, you know, especially Peter. Peter's a really great keyboard player. And he, he was working mm-hmm. with a lot of the uh, Jamaican musicians in Manchester, uh, um, T-Dynamics. And I used to see Peter on on the road all the time when when I was in Community Charge. We were like the two babies out of Simpsons, you know, when they look at each other, it well, was you, that <laughs> sort of thing. But, you know, we got him... So when he, you know, we teamed up with Peter and got his keyboard flowing and that shuffle started going and his, his synthesizer, you know... His uh, knowledge of synthesis is, is absolutely amazing. He can make any sound you want, you know.
0: No, because those those um, those productions, the early ones that I heard, they, they sounded really modern and fresh and digital, but they definitely had this, like, live music thing going on
1: as well. Right, yeah, well, I, mean, I think that's why we, we coined it, digital vibrations from old-school inspirations. You know, we, we kind of wanted it to... And I was really into programming drums, and I still am, actually. I always think, you know, drum machines, you can they can go both ways. You can make them sound yes. like drummers as well, or you can have it digital. But I've always been into sort of like... I used to study a lot of drums, and I used to study reggae drummers, and I'd be like, all right, so that's what you do. You know, getting them, copying them rhythms and actually programming them. So I guess that as well, you know, kind of maybe made them stand out a little bit because it sounded like they were digital drums but they were programmed a little bit you know i got really deep into the programming
0: should say you know yeah we mean? have to, to get that feel and to get you know to to make it work properly you've got to
1: put some effort in you know it's very subtle you know what i mean it isn't full on it's not like putting every you've got to like put something in every slot you know what i mean just to make it exciting or whatever, you know, sometimes, you know, they say less is more, Steve, you know, it's never a true saying. Yeah, it's true, it's you know, true. less is more. But I guess also, you know, just going back to
0: what we were saying before as well, for me, from the outside, it's a bit of a testament to Manchester that you've got, like, you've got a lot of talent there. You've got, like, you know, 12 Tribes House and artists, big Jamaican community, you know, West Indian community, and then all these other musicians influenced by punk and stuff. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of... A lot of things to to cook up in the pot, if you like.
1: Yeah, when it was, it was loads of great um, great musicians here in Manchester, you know. And we we were fortunate to you know break out because I think we've always, you know, you can sometimes be like you know, stay in your own town sort of thing, but we were always thinking outside of Manchester. You know, we always did do even way back to Community Charge. You know, we've got to get there. We've got to play in London. You know, that's it's just the way the business is. You know, you have got to get out. I think that's one of the benefits of not being
0: based in London is that you realise you can't just exist in one place, you've got to take
1: it out. I mean, it must be a different shoe for people living in London, you know what I mean? I've got to get out of here because there's probably so much of it, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, maybe somebody could correct me on it, but, you know, it's like maybe it's so condensed you feel that you're, you're choking, whereas we kind of... Manchester compared to London is a bit rural. It's like, I
0: remember the the Brown album when it came out, being like because you know we'd done quite a lot of shows together and like we'd seen you play and you had a lot of energy and stuff and then his album came out and the album was amazing it's still a great album now and i guess i guess that that did really well because it wasn't anything else really like that around at the time that was like roots reggae but was modern as well
1: well i'm glad I'm um, thanks for saying that steve because i mean i look back at it now and I, i'm you know I'm not as prolific as I used to be, but at least have left me mark. You know, it's like we did. In, you know, I meet people all the time in Europe, and they're like, "Wow, you know, you know, like the OBS and stuff like." That. So, I'm, you know, it was that album. I heard that album. You know, because it was sold quite well in, in the continent, because that's where we got our distribution from. From Too Good, you know, we we went over to uh, France. I mean, I remember the day. You know, we got the phone call from Jerome. You know Jerome, don't you, love? Yeah, of course, yeah. And he goes, he says, oh, I've got a gig there for you, I love you. Because I think we sent him a tape or something. No, it was Sticks, down who passed him a tape on. He was over there. And he used to know, uh, what's his name, he was doing Sons of Arca at the time. And Jerome was really, you know, he was promoting the Jamaican music. You know, a lot of people don't remember Jerome, don't give him enough credit, credit's due, you know what I mean? Because he was bringing mm-hmm. them artists to France, you know. And we'd sent him this tape, and we got this phone call, and it was like, oh, right, you know, I and we'd be there like, you know, right, yeah, we want to bring you to France. And we're like, really? Yeah, come out to Paris. I was like, well, what, how much money you got? And he's like, 150 quid. And I said, oh, well, just uh, hang on a minute. And we put, we covered the phone, put the phone down. And we all did the old silent half minute, and we got back, because we knew we were going. <laughs> so Jerome gave us our, our first uh, leg up in France, and from there, it's where it started, sure, I mean, like I say, I remember, we, we went there in a Ford Orion, we drove there, we loaded up the, the car, and it was like, it was scraping off the floor with all the equipment, because we took all the equipment in them days, Steve, and we drive to Paris, and we did this gig, and it, was, it wasn't a really good gig, I mean, we thought, you know, we played to about three people or something, you know, and it was uh, but you know, we, we touched down, and they really enjoyed it, and Jerome really took us under his wing, and... You know, it did the best for us, and then we got the you know the distribution deal. And I've got to remember putting to place as well. Alex Holland, big big up to him as well because he was managers at the time. He got us a he got us a publishing deal with um, with our friend there. You know, um, um, Westbury. You know, Caroline. Of course, yeah. Of course, lovely Caroline. So she gave us a bit of dough, and we made that album, and that was it. It went on from there, you know, sort of thing. But and it
0: did, it did do well, didn't it? I mean, people, you, you must have sold a lot of copies and got a lot of good feedback about it. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it just went like hotcakes. I remember the days. I mean, we were in like Fanac, you know, playing in front of old people like with their shopping, Steve. You know, like the album release because over there everybody buys the stuff from Fanac, don't they? You know, and we remember like you know, and then we got we finish our little. Gigs and then, you know, magazine would turn up to interviewers and all. it was all very exciting, you know what I mean? Because like, also at that time you, you you were like doing a lot of sort of, starting
0: to do bigger shows in the UK. I mean, you talked about Glastonbury and yeah. you'd, you'd really like tapped into the kind of festival thing and it's like, you know, there was a, Nucleus Roots was a, you know, it was a real force to be reckoned with at the time and I, I remember the energy that you guys put into it as well. It's like you seem really like, you know... Proper committed.
1: Yeah, we we're on the roll then. I mean again, I'm going to big up Chris Tofu for this because we sent him. A, um, I think we sent him a CD. I think we, in the early days we had to bought this bloody uh, CD stamping thing where you could put a sticker on a CD. Remember them? That was like the
0: that was high tech then.
1: We had some crappy software that we'd sort of like, you know, I think it was some sort of paint shop or something, we made some, I don't know, I think you got some software with it, and anyway, we made up some cover and nuclear series and we sent it to Christopher and he really liked it. And I think he had a stage at the time, Firestarter. <clears throat> and we went down there and uh, we were sat in the back and uh, nobody was talking to us because nobody knew us, it was just these guys from Moss Side <laughs> turned up, you know what I mean? And uh, so, you know, when we got playing now, again, we were playing to about 20 people or something like that. And then all of a sudden the tent started filling up. You know, people were going, what the fuck? You know, what's this? You know, I've not heard this before, you know. And we had it rammed. <clears throat> Chris was had a nice smile on his face. And uh, then Greenpeace came up to us and says, oh, look, do you headline our main stage tonight? You know, like, really? right? So wow. we went on the Greenpeace stage and then we went from like playing to about 20 people in the day to uh, playing to thousands in the evening. By, you know, in the evening, you know, it was amazing. I mean, John O couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it was, that was it. And then we went, you know, I think Michael Evis did a painting of us as well that was auctioned off that year as well. I can't remember what year, I think it was 2001 or 2000, something like that. So somewhere there's an oil painting of nucleus roots that uh, Michael Evis got, got painted painted for it, you know what I mean? But then we played like five years. This is Michael Evis, obviously the guy that runs Glastonbury. Exactly, yeah, yeah, he was really impressed because we, we were in the booklet about like, you know, best up, up and coming band of this, this, this festival sort of thing. So, you know, we were really chuffed with that.
0: And what what was it like going through all that? Because obviously when there's a bit of, you know, you'd call it hype now, but back then it was just like, you know, there's a buzz and sort of, what what was it like when it was all happening? Because it must have been sort of, you know, quite exciting stuff, I guess.
1: Well, yeah, we thought we've landed here, haven't we? We've reached, you know, sort of thing. And it was like, you know, brilliant, you know. And then we went back five years after that and we ended up playing the the main jazz stage, which I think is now the... um, at what stage it is now we ended up playing it was an afternoon show or something we were playing in front of them. it was an empty field Steve as soon as we got wired up got going and then it started happening you know and then the BBC started undoing their cameras and everything and started filming and all I don't know whether they'd actually filmed us or not but it was like you know were like, wow, this is who are these lot? You know, we were, I think, we were just like the opening act sort of thing. You know, just... that's it, but now it's like there's
0: such a big scene everywhere. But in those days, it just kind of because it, because we, you know, Vibronic started at the same kind of time yeah, as Nucleus, really. Yeah. So, you know, we shared a, a lot way, of stages. Yeah. And... But like, just going back to the story and stuff, it's like, I mean, obviously, on that album and, and subsequent albums as well, it's like there's this, there's these great vocals, and it's kind of, I think, Nucleus is well known for. You know, like Iron Meditation and these kind of like big tracks, and you know, that, that it, it seemed to have a bit of a skill for like working with vocalists and get getting good results.
1: I think as well. I mean, in them days, I wrote for the artists. So it, it, these days, it's a lot of time people, you know, they're writing a song. I've got a great vibe here, you know what I mean? But I need a vocal, and it, it's it makes it gives it the other fifty percent. You know what I mean? In some cases, it gives it the eighty percent because sometimes the track might be just quite a you know ordinary track on its own. But once you get a great vocal on it, you know it really turns it around, doesn't it? You know, but you know, going back to say re Meditation, I always and a lot of the artists used to just sit down. We'd start it from the guitar. Right, what have you got? You know, and throw a few chords together. You know. Decide on a kind of beat whether it's going to be a step as one drop, you know, a uh, two four, you know, four four, you know. Like we say with Don Hartley, I mean, he, a lot of these, a lot of the artists come from Jamaica, so they, they're their mm-hmm. input into into the, the creation of these songs as well. You know, he'd put uh, like Deep Roots, for instance. He was that's it he was uh, dubbed that as original idea. He had he sketched out an idea, and then you know. Don Hartley would come the lyric, but then he, you know, the, the guitar part on it, for instance, the idea of, you know, was that bap 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 and bap and you know, that offbeat thing that we did. With, mm-hmm. with it. You know, it came from Don Hartley because he, he worked in studios with all these great musicians that we love. He, he knew them people, you know, and he, because he, he, he'd come from Jamaica, he, he, he could add that in the in the mix and teach me you know the mo- i'd learnt a lot from these artists you know like country culture you know uh, that's
0: it because it's definitely like artists that i'd maybe not come across before and like i mean you know, it's a similar story to here in leicester i've been lucky to work with these amazing artists in leicester but people who hadn't maybe recorded much stuff before and it's like it's probably a similar story in Manchester. Like, not so many opportunities to do reggae and get songs out
1: and stuff. Well, that's again. That's what we were. We were often. I was a, go back to what I was saying before. You know, we were charging. I don't know. It was like five an hour or something. You know, come and come and sing us. And so, that, that, for instance, that first album was actually two years of songs we were doing for other people, really, and then we we put it together as a compilation. It's going back to the Frontline albums. For me, it was like if you listen to the first album, it's just not one artist, it's a compilation, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of them are 12 tribes of Israel artists, you know, and then, like, you know, i met people like Ozzy Gad, and then, you know, it went on from there, you know, sort of thing, you know, and people were really like, oh, yeah, these guys can write you a tune, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I still do that now, I, you know, some will contact, oh, can you rewrite that song for me, you know, and we, we just get on it, you know.
0: And you, you you've gone on to play with loads of artists, whether it's in live bands or doing stuff in the studio. It's like you know you seem to have done a lot of work with a lot of different artists over the
1: years. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been lucky, you know. It's like you know, a session for uh, Michael Rose, became good friends with him. You know what I mean? And um, oh, great singer. Yeah, nice guy. You know. Um, that's... I'd say eccentric, but he's a nice, lovely, lovely, lovely gentleman, you know what I mean? And he's, uh, you know, the works we did together, and he's always been really nice, you know. And then we did also worked with Half Pint and stuff like that. Um, you what, know, what was Half Pint like? He's absolutely amazing. He's such a gentle individual. He really loved He really loved the band. He really liked the fact that it was two white guys and two black guys. <laughs> so, because it was me and Peter, and I had um, T-Gad, on bass and Delroy Walker, you know, but he was a really nice guy, really, really lovely, lovely gentleman. Couldn't ask, you know. Great songs as well, you know. Things that I didn't, I didn't realise when I was learning the music for it. It was like, oh, well, it's a bit of an ordinary song, and it? so it's only till you get up on stage in front of like, you know, twenty thousand uh, Jamaican people in like a. Uh, Birmingham, you know, that you realise that these songs, how powerful these songs are. I can't remember a lot of them, like, you know, Beyond Greetings, for instance, you know, there's a lot of these gems that he had that you would think, you know, like lovers' songs and stuff like that, you know. And that's the other side to, the other side to reggae music as well, you know, the lovers' side of it, you know, because I do, you know, sessions for for people, and I love that as well, you know, outside of the, it, the and roots. It, and
0: playing, playing those songs, it's like this, you know, did the stuff... With Michael Proffitt um, for years and it's like to to be able to play some like classic rhythms with a like a foundation artist it's kind of you just learn a lot and you know it's
1: just really really good for you. For me that's what I do sometimes I'll sit back and just see what they can offer you to your productions if you know what I mean and it's like well right well, that's a good idea you know never be always be open to Outside ideas, and never be so like, think, Well, I'm this is my production, you know what I mean? This is how I want it, you know what I mean? But as I said before, you know, some of the songs, some of the, art, uh, the tracks that we've written, you know, a lot of the ideas came from like the singers, like uh, I've got to give credit to Don Hartley for that. You know, with things like Iron, not so much Iron Meditation, more like Deep Roots, really. But you know, it's another great track. You know, yeah,
0: for sure. And and then sort of, you know, moving on to sort of more current stuff. I mean, you're still busy producing tracks and working with artists and kind of, you know.
1: Yeah, I kind of got into um, because it's funny, like going back to what you were saying about like, you know, selling the the first album. Don't forget, I mean, vinyl wasn't very popular then. You know, it's like CD was king. You know, so you could get shifting, but now. Well, about, back in those days,
0: it was kind of cool to have a CD because they were sort of, I guess they were like more expensive to make than records. Exactly. And there was a bit more of a process involved, and it was like, wow, a CD, this is like proper.
1: Well, it was like the technology of the time, wasn't it? It's like, but then it was like, now it's vinyl, isn't it? So I got into cutting some sevens and stuff like that. And um, yeah, still, still, I mean, one particular artist I've got to mention as well, Stickertan Safari from Jamaica, who's a really lovely fellow that brought out that. Um, um, feel-it track, you know, really lovely guy, you know. And I'm, you know, st- still, I'm not as prolific as you used to be, Steve. I mean, I think the, I think it's changed a little bit now. I don't think there's much in the zeitgeist. I think we're, you know, we, we've influenced, but I don't think whether Nuclear Treatment is part of the zeitgeist anymore, you know. It's, it's changed well, it's a little also bit.
0: Well, t- tastes kind of change a bit as well, and there's, there's definitely been a move away from more musical kind of sort of approaches into more sort of like a m- more of a move towards like dance music and like when dubstep came along it kind of changed things up as well and yeah. introduced a whole new influence and all the rest of it
1: yeah you've got to, I mean if I'm writing stuff Steve I want to write stuff I mean I get I get sent stuff sometimes and sometimes I'll be you know I have to go back to them and say look but well, I can't hear the bass because you've used a sine wave and you're like you're at it's lowest register and I can't hear it on my speakers you know what I mean? So it's only going to work on sound system. So my approach, because I grew up, as we go back, you know, to the beginning of the interview, my father was really into, you know, a nice hi-fi. So you sit down, you, you listen to an album, don't you? You know, you want to be able to take that home as well and just have a listen to it in your living room and, and it's a great piece of music to listen to, you know, like, a, like listen to classical music or any album, Floyd or whatever, you know, you know what I mean? You get an album and you want to sit down and listen to because it. Because for me, it's about stuff that transfers. So you can play it on the sound
0: if it's mixed well, but it should also be able to play on your headphones, in the car, at home. You know, shouldn't, you know, for me, it's not, I'm not interested in mixing just for one thing. Like, I, I love sound system and I love mixing for sound system, but I always wanted it to work, you know. And it's a challenge, to, to you're mixing for sound system and mixing for... they two
1: very different environments. Yeah, I think, you, I think you've answered what I was trying to say there, actually. Like I say, you know, having, making it audible on all mediums, sort of thing. That's why I've always been a lover of live bass, me, because bass, <clears throat> something I learned about years ago, because I used to, like, roll off all the bass... You know, roll off all the upper harmonics and that'd be dead sub-bassy and... Then I, um, when I, we got the first album, Master, we went to Hilton Grove and the guy showed me about what bass is about, you know, all these upper harmonics and stuff. And then, so I've always like kind of championed uh, live bass really because you can do anything you want with it. And those upper harmonics really help when you you want to make a track that can be heard on a, a two inch speakers, let alone, you know, tens or fifteens and stuff like that. You know, you want to be able to sort of, like, just listen to it on a small set of speakers and still enjoy the tune. Well, we've been sort of been talking for a bit
0: now, so um, what, what I'm doing at the end of the interview is um, asking people the same question. It's like, I've, I've got this the book of dub and I'm writing everyone's name in it, so I'm going to write, like, Paul, Nucleus Roots, then what, what would you want written next to it, something sort of associated with uh, your own sort of life in dub?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know, I just... I, I think that I hope that, you know... Um, you know, I did my community well. You know what I mean, and that's just remember for that. You know, because one time a guy did say to it "It's mega dread." Actually, he says, "You know, you don't realise it, Paul, but you know, people in your community do respect you for what you've, you know, the achievements you've done, and and uh, the movement of reggae music."
0: Nice,
1: nice. Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. I think for people like us, uh,
0: from the older generation, there's like definitely more of a link. You know, there's a, a direct link to, to you know the West Indian community growing up in England and the UK
1: yeah you know and you've, you've supported that as well and I hope that you know that, um, and I've always yeah. you know tried to um, treat the artists fair I mean should, should do because they are the artists at the end of the day
0: well Paul it's been great having you on the podcast so thanks for taking the time okay, I hope, um, I did, hope I did alright no, ten, 10 out of 10 thanks again for joining me and Paul for this 19th episode of the Life in Dub podcast Wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe to Life in Dub to keep up to date with each new episode. And if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to pass it on to family and friends and help spread the word. All the info you need about the show is on the website, lifeindub.com. And I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.